Well, we've come now to the, our third message in walking through this chapter of Scripture, which is, we've said, infamous for both its subject matter and its content. I'll just briefly recap where we've been, and then we'll move forward. In, in giving sort of an introduction to the chapter, we took note that as Paul addresses this church, he clearly has in mind a community of people with definable boundaries, rules, and obligations to act together as a whole. We saw that for Paul, the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant that served as a type of the New Covenant church. So we are not allowed to just make the blanket statement about anything in the church. We are not allowed to say, well, that was the Old Testament. We can't say that. In some areas we can, but in some areas we cannot. We are not allowed to say that because the, ch- the nation of Israel served as a type of the New Testament church. So thirdly, following Paul's example, our thinking of the church, when we think of the church, we don't utterly sever the relationship with Old Covenant Israel. It always has to be tethered to God's dealings with Israel in continuity and discontinuity. So there will be some places where we say, hey, this is what God said under the Old Covenant, and it still applies in some sense. We see this throughout the New Testament. Paul does that. There are other places, because of the discontinuity, that we say, we're not Israel, we don't do that. There's continuity, there's discontinuity. And then we saw that chiefly, and this is, I think, the main point of this chapter, is that wherever God establishes a community... His chief concern is purity. That's what God desires for His church, purity. Now last week we moved a little closer and just did sort of a a broad overview of what's happening here. We noted that Paul is addressing a particular kind of sin. He prescribes a particular kind of response because we're dealing with a particular kind of sinner. And all of that again is based on or sort of proving that he has in mind this, this community with boundaries and rules and obligations. He's assuming all of that. So that's the recap. Now moving on, if you notice, and and you can keep your Bible open, I hope you will. If you notice, there's a structure as we read through this chapter. And I think if you pay attention to what Paul does, it proves what is his central thrust. We said from the beginning... The main idea of this chapter is not, hey, there's a guy who's married his stepmom. If you pay attention, that issue gets one verse in this chapter. Notice how it's laid out. We just read it. Verses 1 through 5, he names the sin and he commands the church to act. Now in verses 9 to 12 at the end of the chapter, what does he talk about? He deals with sin again. And he closes with telling the church to act. So we have sort of a repetition. There's a sin, you need to deal with it. And at the end of the chapter, there's a sin, you need to deal with it. Now, the middle of this chapter lets us know what is his main force. Those are the bookends. The main idea, central, we see in verses 6 through 8, where Paul addresses the nature of the church, where he says, you are a new lump. This is who you are. And he he deals with that in light of Christ's work as our Passover lamb. 
So for Paul, the nature of the church, in light of what Christ has done, is the basis for what he's saying here. Because of who the church is, you must deal with sin. And the church is who she is because of what Christ has done. So Christ's work lays at the bottom of all of this. So again, the thrust of this chapter is that the church must act. The thrust of this chapter is not, hey, there's a sinner in the church. That is always going to be the case. There will always be sinners, and, and there will be times when there are sinners of this particular kind. That's, that's not striking necessarily. The striking thing is, this is the church of the living God. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And you've not acted? You've not done anything? That's Paul's attitude. So what I want to do for the next three weeks is examine each of these three sections by themselves, starting today with verses 1 through 5. And we'll notice here, and some of this will be just recapping and restating what we've seen. But our four main points today will be the sins examined, Number two, the duty commanded. Number three, the power grounded. And then number four, the action detailed. These are all in verses 1 through 5. So first, we see in verses 1 and 2, the sins examined. Let's read it again. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now we've already noticed that there are really two sins being dealt with in this chapter. A man has taken his father's wife. He's married his stepmother. But also preeminently the church has failed to act. Now let's move a little closer. That first sin, this the sin of this individual. When we read this chapter, very often we relate it or we think in terms of this one man. In this church, one man has committed a sin. But I think if we pay attention, the sin is actually probably more pervasive than just that. He says, There's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. Now, he doesn't start with the specific act. He will name it. He starts with this notion of sexual immorality. The word is pornea, from which we get our term pornography. There is pornea, there is sexual immorality among you. Now this word pornea is the broadest category of sexual sins. This is as, as, as wide as you can go. Now, all sexual sins fall under the commandment of God in Exodus 20.14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if we want to begin to split hairs, adultery is specifically a sin that violates the marriage bond. So somebody involved in this sin is already married. But if we want to come out and expand... Sexual immorality includes adultery and every other sin that might involve two people who are not married. So sexual immorality involves sins both inside and outside the marriage bond. All of them 
again, assumed under this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Scripture is clear that both sins that are within the the confines of a, a covenant marriage and sins that are outside of the confines of a covenant marriage, both of these are violations of the perfect law of a holy and righteous God. God says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, later in chapter 6, Paul will say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In verse 18, he will say, flee sexual immorality. Now, our culture will say, well, all sins are the same. Sexual sins, oh, you're guilty of this, but I mean, look right over here. Are these people not doing this as well? You'll you'll very often hear... um, all those people in the church, well, they don't mind pointing out uh, the sins of, of uh, sodomy, homosexual sins, but look at them. Their, their belly hangs out over their belt. They're, they're probably gluttons. Well, you don't know that that person is a glutton. But also, there's something special about sexual sin. As if we keep reading in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sec- the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is a special kind of sin. In Romans 1, there is an extent to which people can go in sin. The furthest extreme of that is sexual sin, and and in particular, homosexuality. This is a, a, a grave sin. To the Colossians, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. To the Thessalonians, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And if that weren't enough, this exact sin that's here is named in Leviticus 18.8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Now, do we read that? Do we read 1 Corinthians 5 and, or, or Leviticus 18 rather and say, well, that's the Old Testament. No, we don't. We see this is, this is a sin condemned by God from the beginning of time to the end of time. And sadly, he has to say to this church, there is sexual immorality among you. Remember that word among you means in. It's in the church. It's in and amongst the people. And some have pointed out that Paul's language is... Striking, and it might allude to the fact that there was a bigger problem in Corinth than just this one man. We typically read it as if he's saying this. There's sexual immorality among you. What I mean is that one man is in sin. That this man is the only guilty party. Another way of reading it might sound more like this. There's sexual immorality among you, and it's even gone so far that an individual has his father's wife. This man merely represents the most extreme case in the church. Now, do I have any proof of that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after this epistle, after Paul makes what he refers to as a painful visit to them, he then writes another letter and he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. 
it seems like this was a bigger problem than just this one man. But this one man, as we saw last week, was a particular kind of sin, uh, in a particular kind of sinner, an open, flagrant, uh, reproachful thing that was known about amongst the community. So we, we, whereas we, we first read it and we would think to ourselves, wow, there's a sexually immoral man in the church. The reality seems to be that sexual immorality in the broad sense, probably in many ways, was still in this church. I don't know whether I should say common in this church, but it was a, a, a more pervasive problem than just this individual. A church of Jesus Christ has to hear these words. There's sexual immorality among you. A, a true church. Paul doesn't say, well, you're a false church because there's sin among you. He's assuming still this is a true church, and yet sadly, there's sexual sin among them. A church of true saints, a church of Jesus Christ has this sin among them. A, a pornea problem, a sexual immorality problem. That's the first sin. And then as we've seen, the other sin that's the biggest problem here is the way that the church has responded to this, or we should say has failed to respond. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? That, that reveals to us what should have been their proper response. The, their sin is they've not dealt with it. They're arrogant. What they should have done is mourn. Whether it's corporate sin or private sin, whether it's sexual immorality or a sin of another sort, the proper response to the people of God, whether corporately or as an individual, the response should be mourning, sadness, heartbreak. Because that's what's included in the work of true repentance. Where there is no mourning, there's no repentance. This man could, could potentially, and the others involved... This man could say, all right, I'm done. I, I, I'll, I'll leave that. I'll walk away from it. But then he could turn right around and say, well, you know, the reason I went into that sin was because of something that happened to me in my childhood. I was abused as a child, and therefore I'm scarred, and that's why. That's not repentance. You've just blamed your sin on somebody else. There's no mourning there. True repentance involves godly sorrow, sadness, Produced by the Spirit over the fact that you personally are guilty of offending God. You've sinned against God. But there also must be a detestation, a real disdain and disgust for the sin. Where you look at your own self and you say, how could I be guilty of that kind of sin? Not making excuses. Well, the Lord knows my frame. He knows that I'm dust. He knows that I can't this. and He knows that I'm weak. And He knows, no, no, no. Repentance looks at oneself and says, how could I, a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, allow that to happen? Detestation and also self-abhorrency. A hatred for your own sinful flesh and remaining corruption. That doesn't mean we completely and utterly abhor everything about ourselves. But this, the fact that there's remaining sin in us, we abhor it. We want it gone. We want rid of it. That's what a Christian and a church should do when there's, there's sin. Sexual immorality was in Corinth. 
The fact that there was remaining sin in a church is not strange. They were not glorified and neither are we. The question is, will they deal with the sin? If there's sin among us, the question is not, are there any sinners? Every one of us is a sinner. The question is, are we dealing with our sin? Will you deal with sin? Will the church deal with sin? These are the the sins that are at play here. Number two. The next thing we see is the duty commanded. The duty commanded. Again, just to recap, we saw some of this last week. At the end of verse 2, Paul says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, basic hermeneutical principles. Typically, you start out by asking who's the author, who's the audience. So the Apostle Paul, a messenger, a representative of the authority of Jesus Christ, writes to a church... And he says, let him who have done, who's done this be removed from among you. Now, that phrase, let him, is a command. It's an imperative. He is not saying, listen, you all need to let this man leave. He's not saying that. We would say that Paul's saying, remove this man. Get him out. That's what he's saying. The word remove means just that. Take him away. Make, he, he's, he's currently in one place. He needs to be in another place. He needs to be moved from where he is to somewhere else. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's a man among you. Make it so that he is not among you. Move him from among you in the middle to outside of you. And this again implies what we've already seen, that Paul is presupposing definable boundaries, the the boundaries of a local church. There are people who are in, there are people who are out. If that's not assumed, then this doesn't make any sense. It's possible to be in the church so that you are no longer out. And it's possible to be out of the church so that you are no longer in. And being in or being out has Clear, meaningful repercussions. It means something to be in. It means something to be out. And Paul is saying that those privileges that come from being in the church must be taken away. Remove him from membership. I don't think he's saying get get three or four of the strongest guys and pick him up and carry him outside the building. He's not saying that. Because being inside the building and worshiping amongst the people of God, that is not an exclusive privilege of being in the church. Unbelievers can come and be in and amongst the worship of God's people. So excommunication doesn't mean, well, we don't allow that anymore. What it means is whatever privileges come from being a member are taken away. Now, what does that assume? There are privileges that come with being a member. And there are things that you don't get if you're not a member. Again, this is all assuming what we call church membership. So Paul is basically saying remove him from the membership of the church. Number three, we have the power grounded. In verse three, Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, why do I call this power? The power grounded. What what power is at play here? Well, Paul has just commanded that the church 
exert a force. Again, it's not a physical force, but exert some sort of force upon this man so that he loses privileges that he previously had. So what, it, what we're assuming here is that there is a power, the church has a power or, and the apostle has a power to remove from a man those privileges. How can Paul command this? What right does he have? We, in our modern ears, we, we want to, or we might tend to, to ask, what right does the church have to do this? What, if you were the, an outsider looking in, what right do those people have to tell this man that he can't have, that he can't just show up and say, I'm, I'm a part of this church? What right do they have? Is it not his power to just walk in and say, I'm here. I'm a part of this people. That, and if they say, sir, we have to remove these privileges. We take this away. You're no longer a member. He could say, no, no, no. I am a member. I feel like a member. I want to be a member. I act as a member. I'm a member. What right do they have? Well, this is assuming that one group of people has the right to tell an individual, you don't get the privileges. Now, the irony of that, and I think it's, it is questioned in our culture, in our, our world, but the irony, if you think about it, is nobody thinks that way about any other society in the world. No, only in the church do people think that they can come in when they please, leave when they please, and act as they please while we're there. Nowhere else. You can't, if I name the, the company nearby, a business, I can't just walk in and say, I work here. They would say, no, you have to leave. Our insurance will not allow you to be here. You must leave. And they could actually physically remove me. Right? I can't walk into the, the whatever club, the Lions Club or the Moose Lodge or whatever. I can't just walk in and say, I'm, I'm here, I'm one of you. They would say, no, you're not. And if I went through the process of becoming a member, I couldn't say, well, now that I'm a member, I'm going to do this. I mean, y'all have your rules and y'all have your way of conducting yourself, but I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. This is how I want to do it. They would say, sorry, that don't fly. Nowhere else. In, in the springtime when recreation sports are taken off, you can't just walk up to a field with your kid and say, get out there and play, son. Go out there, join the team. My, my, boy's, my boy's gonna be on the team. You can't do that. They would say, what are you doing? And none of us would do that. Nobody would do that because everywhere there are assumed boundaries, obligations. People know who's in, who's out. There are rules for those who are in, rules for those who are not in. Everybody understands that until we come to the church and all of a sudden people say, my will, my way. I want in, I'm in, I'll do as I please. Paul doesn't assume that. There is a power at work here. This is the application of power from Christ given to the apostle and power from Christ to the church. Now that's important. This is not power from Christ to the apostle to the church. This is power from Christ to the apostle, power from Christ to the church. Both of them have power from Christ that functions in a particular way. Now notice what Paul says. I want to prove all of that. He says, For let this, be, let this man be removed from among you, verse 3, For. 
Here's why you can and must do this. Here's where the power to do this comes from. For, though absent in body, I am present in spirit. The apostle's presence. He says, I'm not physically there, but I'm there in thought. I'm there in heart, spiritually. He says, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, I'm not there, but I'm going to act like I am there. I'm going to go ahead and say, I've already determined the man's guilty. He, this man is guilty. Action must be taken. Paul uses his apostolic authority given to him by Christ to hand down this judicial sentence on the man. Now, this is in a time before the completion of the canon of the Scripture. There are still living apostles And these men, the apostles, exercised the power of Christ Himself. When when Paul says this, I've I've already pronounced judgment, that that would be as if we heard the man Jesus say, I have pronounced my judgment. And with that power given to Him from Christ, Paul could command the church to act. Paul had the right to command the church to remove this man. Now, we have questions when we read this. Wait a second. Will there be no trial? Will there be no interrogation? What about Matthew 18? What if this man is repentant when this letter comes? He's immediately repentant. What happens here? In this scenario, and we we might get more into this in our evening studies, but in this scenario with this particular kind of sin... The sentence is to be executed without the typical proceedings that would attend lesser sins. I'm not saying there are no proceedings. We'll see what they are in a minute. But not with all of that other stuff. There, there are, this is going to happen a lot more swiftly to, to illustrate the point. A man breaking into your home at nighttime, he does not have the right to a speedy and fair trial. He got his trial when he kicked in the door. He was judged guilty when he kicked in the door. He won't see a jury. Now, other people, other sins, we would say they're innocent until proven guilty. We have the right to a fair trial. We're going to go through this process. But in some, we understand this, with some crimes, you're the jury. The jury's waiting on the other side of the door. That's similar here. Because of the particular kind of sin, the particular kind of sinner, and the particular, this particular response is commanded. Just he's, The judgment is done. In this situation, because of the public testimony of the church, And because the public testimony of Christ is at stake, action must take place swiftly in order to at least clear the name of Christ. So let's say the man hears, that they they come to the assembly, and he hears, and he says, you're right, I've done wrong. They would still say, you're out. We will deal with the repercussions after the fact. There will be more. We're We're not cutting you off. But at this point, to clear the name of Christ, we're done. Christ's name is cleared. Now we can begin to work through some of the details. So there was power to do this. And that power is grounded in this apostolic authority. Paul could say, I've made my judgment act. And they would have the power to do it. Now number four, point number four, we have the action detailed. How does the church go about this? Well, he says, when you are assembled... In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So notice what he says. When you are assembled, as we begin to detail the action, what's the first thing that's required here? An assembly. There must be an assembly. Why? Notice what he says. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. And, and, and it is, I, I think it's proper to say that what he's saying is, I'm present spiritually with apostolic power. When you are gathered in the name of Christ, you also have a power. So the with the power of the Lord Jesus is applied to the church, the assembled gathering. The church assembled in the name of Jesus carries the power of the Lord Jesus. The church, when assembled, and only when assembled, has the right to execute such a judgment. Remember, the keys of the kingdom of heaven were given to whom? The church. We see that in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Once a church is established, that church has the keys given to them by Christ and has the duty to use those keys. The apostles in, in the time of Scripture and now the Word of God now, these are used to serve the church in her judicial proceedings. We see this in, in Acts chapter 15. Then there were still living apostles, but in Acts chapter 15 they didn't say, we've got a problem, let, let the apostles have a meeting. They didn't say, let the, let the presbytery meet. No, it was the apostles, the elders, and the whole church gathered to make a decision. Here, Paul does not say, I'm an apostle, the man's out. He says, I've declared the judgment, now you must assemble church and carry out the judgment. The church has a power, and the apostle has a power, and they come together to produce what we would call biblical, proper church discipline. And it's interesting that Paul himself would not usurp these keys. He didn't say, I'm going to go ahead and say the man's out. He says, I pronounce my judgment. Now, when you are assembled, you must act. The church has to do it. In this instance, they are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, I think a lot could be said about this, but at the very least, what we see is this man is being cut off from the privileges of the kingdom of Christ and hand it back over to the consequences that would be found in the kingdom of darkness outside the church. And the purpose is the destruction of the flesh. Now that doesn't mean his physical body. We're talking about the remaining corruption that is in him, his sin that is remaining. The purpose is that being cut off from the privileges of the church and being left to the consequences of his sin... That would be used by the Spirit of God to awaken him, to get him to snap out of his blindness and his sin, to wake up, mortify that sin, repent, and return to Christ. It's supposed to work that way. Now, the church says, we're turning you loose into the world for the purpose of the destruction of the flesh, as we'll see, so that... The spirit may be saved. So the goal here is that his sin would be mortified 
and it would prove that he belongs to the Lord. In other words, this whole thing serves to hopefully prove that this man is a true believer. It serves to save his soul. Now, what happens to that goal if we come down in our day where we say we're going to remove a man from fellowship or a woman from fellowship, from membership, and they say, who do they think they are? They can't remove me from anything. There's, there, there are no boundaries. There's no in or no out. I showed up. I came on my, my own uh, free will, and I'll leave whenever I, when I good and well feel like it. Well, that would not produce this outcome, you see. Or if this person is able to say, you know what, I'll just go down the road down here, and I'll just join that church. No questions asked. I'll just walk in. Is that going to serve the purpose of mortifying the flesh so that the soul is saved? No. They can hold on to their sin, take it right with them down the road. That's, that's where we are in our culture. But that's, this is not what was happening in the times of Scripture. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Where, where there's no mortification, you remove this man from fellowship, if there's no mortification of the sin, that's evidence, no spiritual life in this person. This person is dead. But if this works... And there is mortification. What does that prove? We've got a believer here. Wait a second. This man had his, his, his father's wife. He was a believer. That was a Christian. It was proved. His Christianity is not found in the fact that he was a sinner, but how he responded to his sin. Excommunication serves to manifest these invisible realities. It shows things that are in darkness that we can't see. The work of grace we can't see. Whether it's true or false, we can't tell many times. But what this does is this will show to the world how do they respond to their sin? What happens when they are removed from the fellowship? It'll, it'll manifest that. The assembled church then has the power, ability, and tools necessary to prove either the authenticity or inauthenticity of the faith of its members. Let me say that again. The assembled church has the power, ability, and tools necessary to prove either the authenticity or inauthenticity of the faith of its members, or we could say especially of its sinning members. How do they respond to their sin? The church has the power to do that. Now, that, that's, those are bold statements in our day. This is, this is strong language. It is not uh, strange or newfangled to suggest that if a person says, I'm a Christian, you could be able to say, or you should be able to respond, what church are you a member of? And if they say, no church, then you can say, then I do not need to accept your testimony. I do not need that. Because the testimony will be borne by their relationship to the visible church, not just their uh, confession or profession of being a member of the invisible church. The Lord has given us ways to make these things evident so that we can see. We're not left to just blindly wander along and try to figure out, well, they, they say the right things here and here and here, but there's so many things off here and here and here. No, the, the Lord has given us the tools Necessary. Now, I would qualify that with saying that, that none of this is absolute certainty. 
Are there true Christians who are not members of churches? Of course. Are there members of churches who are on their way to hell? Absolutely and of course. This, these things are not certain. We are fallible in our interpretation and application of these things. But we're not without tools. We're not just left wondering and trying and scraping to make these things plain. The Lord has given us the power and ability and tools necessary. So Paul in this passage is pressing upon us the duty of acting upon the great power that has been given to the local church. This is the power of the church to open and close the door of the kingdom of heaven. The power that comes straight from Christ through His Word to His people. And a power that allows the church to preserve her purity by opening the door to people who should be in and letting them in and by opening the door to people who should not be in and allowing them to go on their way. That power has not been given to anyone else in the world except for the assembled church. Now, five points of application. Number one, to fail to use this power is sin. To fail to use this power is sin. Well, you say, how can you say that? Well, it's commanded by God. If God commands us to do something, we don't do it. We have sinned by way of omission. We have omitted what God told us to do. We've sinned. Now, why would a church not do what Christ has commanded? Why would a church fail to use this power? Several reasons. First, inconvenience. It's not convenient. Doing what we're seeing here is not convenient. It requires extra meetings. I, I don't. We've done this, but I don't think it's wise to do this sort of thing on a Lord's Day morning. I don't, I don't think this, that's the best place to carry out these proceedings. So it requires times. It requires extra meetings, which means it's an interruption into the lives of people. And for a lot of people, the church and her proceedings are not a priority. And so it's just inconvenient. Well, i got to come back again? Well, yeah. It's inconvenient. Secondly, it's awkward. It's awkward. Who, who likes to sit and see what is probably a close friend confronted with their sin in front of a group of people? Who wants to be known as, as somebody who voted for someone else to be removed from the church? No, we don't like that. That's not necessarily a badge of honor that we want to wear. We usually want our sin to be a private matter because when it is made public, it's embarrassing. Especially if it's of this magnitude, it's embarrassing. So the whole matter becomes awkward and a lot of churches will not do this simply to avoid the awkwardness. Thirdly, there's usually a relational bias in the church that causes people not to want to exercise this power. Churches are, believe it or not, historically, usually made up of families. And if not families, at the very least, people who have become close friends over time and a lot of people don't want to confront a friend or a family member with their sins. We, we are usually very good at standing on a street corner and shouting at a thousand people we don't know that they're living in sin. That's way easier than looking a friend or family member in the face and saying, you have sinned. 
And we, we don't like that. There's a bias there. And for many people, family ties and friendships are more important than the purity of the church. Church discipline makes family reunions awkward. Church discipline makes trips to the grocery store awkward. In a small town, you're going to see somebody. That gets weird. And people say, I, I, just, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to ruin friendships. I don't want to make things awkward in the community. And so they don't do it. Another reason churches will not do this is feigned love or compassion. Feigned is a, an old word for fake, false, pretended. Many want to think that they show greater love by not dealing with sin. They say, well, we don't want to do that because we love them. They think it's more compassionate to overlook the sin. Just let it go. And there are times when love covers a multitude of sins. There are, there are kinds of sins where that is perfectly biblical and right. But when we're dealing with particular kinds of sin like this, to say, well, I, I just love them, I don't want to address it, that's fake love. That's not real love. That's not real compassion. That kind of love holds someone's hand all the way to hell and says, I love you as they're falling into hell. That's not real love. But that's why many churches will not use this power. Another reason churches won't use this power is, is because consistency would require them to clean house. They say, if we, if we apply these biblical standards, there won't be anybody left. Right. Right. For all these reasons, many churches simply do not act against sin in their midst. They, they fail to sin, but to, or they fail to use this. But to fail to use this power is sin because God has commanded it. Number two, the second application, to misuse or abuse this power is sin. To misuse or abuse this power is sin. You say, how can you say that? Well, the prescriptions are clear. The Word of God is not uh, gray or foggy. He's told us what to do. So if we go outside of what He's commanded, or we go beyond what He's commanded, or we stop short of what He's commanded, we are sinning against the light of Scripture. The Word of God is clear. Now, how might people misuse this power? Well, People misuse this power by di diverting away from the prescriptions. So God says this, well, we think we're going to do it this way. They veer off. They come up with their own steps or methods. Or they might stop short of true discipline. Or some people divert from the prescriptions and go into a kind of shunning, which is popular among the Amish. A shunning. We don't talk to them. We don't we turn our shoulder. They're coming down the street. We walk on the other side. We're done with them. Well, that's not biblical either. That is an abuse of church power. We cannot do that. Diverting from the prescriptions. Another way to misuse this power is when an individual or a smaller group acts or tries to act apart from the church as a whole. So an individual or a smaller group of people might decide to try to actually excommunicate a member or maybe they just do it mentally. Maybe someone just says, well, they're dead to me. They're, I, I've written them off in my book. I mean, they might still be here. They might technically be a member of our church, but I'm done with them. You've just excommunicated that person in your own mind. Sometimes pastors or elders will try to act alone. 
in this work without the church. That's an abuse of church power. That's a misuse. Another way that this power is misused is when people act without biblical warrant or a church acts without biblical warrant. Uh, Usually this implies uh, excommunication or church discipline against sins of a nature where the Bible does not say that it is required. Very often it's things that are not sins at all, that are personal preferences and opinions. But if enough of the church holds a personal preference or opinion, then they can all get together and say, we're going to remove this person because they don't do A, B, and C. Well, does the Word of God say that's a sin? Well, no, but we've all pretty much agreed that that's how we're going to do things. I'm sorry, you don't have the right to do that. That's an abuse of power. Acting without biblical warrant. Now, why would, why would a church do that? A lot of times it's, it's just ignorance. Ignorance of the rules given in Scripture. Many times there's impatience. People want to act so quickly to get a person out or to deal with something that they skip the steps that God has prescribed. Well, if we, if, we, if we wait till an assembly, we'd have to wait till Monday. Let's just get a smaller group of people together on, on Saturday evening and we can knock this thing out. No, that's not biblical. That's an abuse. That's a misuse. Some people just generally have a harsh spirit and they take a, a, a carnal delight in reveling in the sins of other people and they want to bring it out in ways that are unbiblical. Oftentimes you might have a person who has a personal agenda against a per- another individual. They want to act quickly. They sidestep biblical, the, the biblical order of things to act quickly because they know if we bring this thing to a trial and the matter is examined, the whole church is going to find out this person's not guilty. We've got no case here. Well, we can't have that. Let's just act quickly. Just get it done. Same thing that happened with our Lord. To misuse or abuse church power is sinful because God has given clear prescriptions on how and when and who may execute this authority. Number three, to usurp this power is sinful. To usurp it. That means to take this power for yourself when it's not yours. Christ has given this power to the assembled church alone. So for any other body or group of people or any individual person to take this power onto themselves is a sin against Christ and against His church. It's a usurpation of authority. What does this look like? Well, historically, there have been those who have advocated that the state should exercise church discipline. In places where you have a state church, they would say, well, it's the state's job to require church membership and it's the, ch- the state's job to apply excommunication. That's a usurpation. This is not the role of the state. This is the role of the church. There's clerical usurpation, as we've already seen. Uh, pastor or pastors or elders will take this power into themselves. So they might just go along to somebody's house and say, hey, listen, don't come back. I don't have the authority to do that. A pastor doesn't have that authority. And he just shows up on Sunday and says, hey, just to let y'all know, we excommunicated somebody, they won't be here. I took care of it. That's not right. Christ didn't give that power to the elders of a church. An individual might usurp this power. In modern times, it's more likely that an individual will try to usurp this power for themselves. Because in modern times, it's the individual who decides if and when they want to enter the church. It's the individual who decides if and when they want to leave the church. 
Well, the problem is the keys of the kingdom have not been given to the individual. They've been given to the church. It's a usurpation of the keys that Christ has given to the church. Now, why do people do this? Typically, it's personal pride. Many people want power. They want authority. In our, in our time, people hate the idea of any authority over them. Anybody telling them they, they can or cannot do this or that or they don't have the right. People want to be able to act freely of their own choice. Or it might be, I'll use this word again, feigned humility. False, pretended humility. Where the sinner himself or herself says, You're right, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just go away quietly. Just let me fade into the shadows and I'll be out of your hair. You, you, you've, you've caught me. We don't need to go any further. I don't want to cause any trouble. I'll just leave. Sorry, you don't have the right to do that. That's not, that's not, your, right, that's not your decision to make. The church has to act. Or it might be real humiliation. Sin is an embarrassment. When sin is brought in in public, it's an embarrassment. And so people will do the same thing. Well, look, we don't, we don't need to take this thing public. Let's keep it private. I'll, I'll just go. I'll tell people it was this or this. You'll never hear from me again. Let's just, let's, don't bring this thing out. Sorry. You don't have that authority. There must be action. It's, it's the old uh, hurry up and quit before you get fired thing. Right? I'll, I'll just quit. That way I can't be, I'll never have a record that says I got fired. No, you, you got fired. That's what people will try to do because they're humiliated by their sin. Another, another way that this is usurped is clerical. A clerical lording over God's heritage. Many will use the office of pastor, elder, to lord over God's church, to lord power, to feel strong. And they will act alone because it makes them feel that power. I bring in who I want in. I remove who I want to remove. God has not given the elders of the church that authority. And the, what, what happens? Well, all of this is just more sin. Compiling sin upon sin for the state or the pastorate or the individual or anyone besides the gathered church to usurp this power is to take a power that Christ gave to the church alone. Number four, to abdicate this power is sin. To usurp is to take it for yourself, what's not yours. To abdicate is just let it go, to, to relinquish it, give it to somebody else. And that's sinful. For the church to hand over this power to someone else is sinful. Now what might this look like? Well, a lot of people, a lot of churches want to abdicate this duty to time and providence. Just let some time pass. Don't, don't jump to conclusions. The Lord will work. We're not the Holy Spirit. Just, just let them be. The Lord will teach them over time. When, with particular kinds of sins and particular kinds of people, sinners, we don't, we don't abdicate the thing to time and providence. You have to act. Others will abdicate the matter, again, to the elders. For many churches, they, they like the idea of letting the elders do the dirty work. Just go. Y'all deal with it. We don't have to have an extra meeting. It doesn't have to bother us at all. We, we trust your decision. That's not right. Others will abdicate the matter to what has been called a bully pulpit. A bully pulpit. The church don't have to do anything. The pastors won't do anything. We'll just get a man in the pulpit where the elders are somebody else. 
and he'll just hammer it and publicly shame the person until they leave. And you say, there, we dealt with it. They're gone. Well, that's not what Christ commanded. Many men are bold behind the sacred desk, but they can't have a face-to-face conversation. And people know that. It's easy to stand here and to just shame, just throw things out. That's a lot easier than just than having a, pers- a face-to-face conversation. And a lot of people will allow that to be their manner of church discipline. Why do churches do this? Number one, unbelief. They don't believe the Word of God. They don't believe God's methods work best, even though they're difficult, awkward, inconvenient. They don't believe it. They say, we've got a better method. Or cowardice. Many people, many churches are full of cowards who simply will not confront sin in a biblical manner. They would rather somebody else do it or they'll send a team or they'll send this or that because they can't do it themselves. They want somebody else to do their own dirty work. Ultimately, all of this is out of a lack of love for the sinner. Lack of love. Many churches and even Christians simply do not care enough about the soul of the sinner to act and to apply the God-ordained method in saving their soul. The text says this method for this purpose that his soul may be saved. And a lot of churches say we don't care about the soul being saved. We care about reputation. We care about convenience. We care about getting rid of the awkwardness. We care about keeping good... uh, Relationships in our town, they want to stay out of trouble. But to abdicate this responsibility, to relinquish this power given by Christ to the church, is sin against Christ Himself, in addition to sinning against the offending party. That person's a sinner, and you don't do what God told you to do. You've now sinned against them by not giving them this opportunity to have their soul saved in the day of the Lord. Fifth application we see from all of this is that it is a high calling for the honor of Christ in the world to wield this power. It's a high calling. It honors Christ if we will wield this power properly. The duty of acting upon and executing the great power that has been given to the local church by Christ should be viewed as a serious, mournful, and yet high and holy calling. And in this way, the church protects the public honor of Christ. Maybe not ourselves. You don't get a good reputation in in your, your society, your town, your city, as a church who does this, but it will protect the honor of Christ. People won't be able to say, Well, that Christ doesn't save. That Christ doesn't change people. That Christ doesn't make people holy. They won't be able to say that. They will have to say, those people are different. The way that they do things is different. It will be like Acts chapter 5 when it says, none dared join them because they were in fear and awe of the church. In church discipline, it is as Christ said that we are able to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. They will be able to see the power of Christ. They will see the holiness of our Lord. 
Now, they might not use those words. They, might, they, they probably won't say, wow, your Christ must really be holy. But they'll, they will be able to say there's something different about these people. They're not like the rest of our world. They've got rules. They've got boundaries. They've got obligations. They don't just carry on like everybody else. What is it about these people? What would we, what would we say? We would say the Lord is walking amidst His lampstands. Christ is among us. Christ wants a pure community. So we, we go about these steps seriously, mournfully. We don't clap our hands and say, yay, this is, this is so much fun. We go about it with sobriety, understanding in this way we honor our Lord and we love the souls of sinners. Let's pray together.